Colossians chapter 1, please. Don't you long for the day when all of the earth is filled with God's glory and the visible manifestation of His glory? um, Anouk and I were talking last night, and uh, we long... We long for eternity. We, we long for heaven because everything will be set new. And everything will be placed as it should be. And that will be the ultimate manifestation of the reconciling work of God. We saw in, a couple weeks ago when we were last in Colossians 1, we started this idea of reconciliation when Paul said in verse 20, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So he introduces this concept and he continues it uh, in principle, but the, the specific concept of reconciliation here in our text before us this morning is going to be 21, 22, and actually 23 as well. Please follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read from mine. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, that you heard, which has been pro- proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, am a minister. That is the word from the living God. I enjoy reading. Um, there are several books that I have on my shelf. I, I've got my library organized in different ways, and right behind my desk as I'm studying. Um, there's a shelf of books that I need to read. And that shelf keeps getting more and more full. And I grab a book, like, yeah, I need to read this, and so I put it up there. And right now I think I have about 20 books on that shelf, and I'm currently reading about four or five of them. And so I'm not doing a very good job of getting through them all. Because um, the more books you read at the same time, the slower you go. But one of the books, one of the type of books that I enjoy reading as I have time are biographies. And I have been able to read some very good biographies. Um, there's a biography uh, by Ian Murray on Jonathan Edwards that is fabulous. Um, I, I benefited from that book this last week as I was studying. Um, I've read a biography of uh, Ronald Reagan. Actually, it was a, a biography and then also his autobiography, American Life. Um, a couple years ago, or right as soon as the book was published, my father-in-law bought me the uh, official biography of Steve Jobs, which um, I, I read. It's about a 700-page uh, book that it went really quickly. It, it was a very uh, Isaacson who wrote the book did an excellent job of of writing that book. And so there are several biographies that I've been able to read over the years. And, and what I like about reading biographies or autobiographies is because it, it tells us their story. It tells us where they were, where they, what they did and what they became, and then finally, finally the legacy that they left. 
And you can see as you look back on these people's lives, you can see different themes in their lives. Let's take, for instance, Steve Jobs. One of the things that was most intriguing to me is his uh, passion for detail, but then his insatiable quest for satisfaction. And unfortunately, by reading his biography, I don't know that I ever found that. Um, he struggled in the area of spirituality. He, he, he was all over the map at different points in his life. And there was one point where he really struggled with even the existence of God. And finally, but there was an interesting story in that biography where uh, when he got married to his second wife, he, uh, they asked for the renowned cellist, Yo-Yo Ma, to perform for them at their wedding. Now, parenthetically, to show you my culture understanding, I originally thought Yo-Yo Ma was a rapper, not a uh, cellist. I was wondering why he wanted a rapper at his, his wedding. Um, I told that to somebody, and they just looked at me like, you are an idiot. Um, and, but Yo-Yo Ma could not perform because he was out of the country on tour. But when he came back into the country, he went to the job house and performed a private uh, concert for them in their living room. And Steve Jobs said to Yo-Yo Ma, he said, your playing is the greatest argument that I've ever heard for the existence of God. Because what you just did could not come from mere man. He was constantly searching for things. He was searching for truth. I don't know, I don't know in his final moments what happened. But as we look at the story of, of someone like Jobs or someone like Reagan, and we have all these interesting tidbits, or, or someone like George Mueller read his uh, George Mueller Bristol, which is an excellent book to read, you see what was really important to them, and you see what defined them. Today I want to talk about your biography. I want to talk about my biography. Now, I'm not going to tell you about how I grew up. I'm not going to tell you from what state I came and the things I did in high school and all that. That's not the biography I'm talking about. I think we see a spiritual biography right here in Colossians 1, 21. Where we were, where we are, what will be our legacy. And what Paul does here is he takes a very general truth of reconciliation And he turns it and makes it very personal and very emphatic in chapter 1, verse 21. He says, and you. You can imagine the Colossians as they were reading this for the first time or hearing it read for the first time. He just just talked about how he reconciled all things to himself, whether in heaven or in earth, in verse 20. And talking about how God is doing this great, awesome work of reconciliation. And then the very next words are an emphatic statement saying, but you and you have been reconciled. So let's talk about this today. Let's talk about your biography and my biography. First of all, what you were. Point number one, we don't have anything on the screen today, so I'll try to be very clear as some people are taking notes. Point number one is what you were colon, estranged from God. 
You were once alienated and hostile mind doing evil deeds, the Scripture says. We were estranged from God. We were alienated and hostile in our mind. The way that's written, it has the understanding that was our fixed condition. That was our state. That is who we were. That, is, that was our position. That was our character. That was where we were at in our lives. We were alienated and hostile to God. This speaks of our position and our character. We had no hope. We were separated from God. We did not enjoy peace with God. We did not enjoy fellowship with God. Now, for some of you, you might be like me, and at an early age in life, maybe you grew up in a Christian home, and so at an early age in life, you, you ask God to save you from your sins. And so, you know, I, I, was, I was a young boy when the truths of the gospel became very clear to me that I knew I needed Christ to save me from my sins. But I didn't have a real understanding like this. I didn't understand that this was what my sin was doing to me. I didn't understand that I was an enemy of God. According to Ephesians chapter 2, we are born enemies of God and we're under the wrath of God when we're born. And so, you know, as, as a young boy, I, I, didn't, I didn't have that conscious understanding that I was alienated from God. And so maybe that's your testimony as well. Maybe that's your history as well. Maybe that's your biography where you, you don't have the sense of how bad your condition really was. And just because we don't have that sense doesn't mean it wasn't true. Maybe God preserved us from some of those things or from knowing how bad it was. But here's the fact of the matter is if we are here without Christ, then we are enemies of God. And it says that that was our character, and it says it says that, that also doing evil deeds. I remember when I was a teenager, I... I would sit in these, these youth rallies and things like that, and, and I, I knew that I wanted to, I thought God wanted me to be a pastor from the time I was like 12 or 13 years old, and so this is, this is something I've just always wanted to do. And, and so I, I would hear preachers come in, and so I, I would listen to preachers, and I would, I would try to, to, to learn from them, and, and sadly some I would, I would even try to emulate, you know, their mannerisms and stuff like that. That was kind of the culture I grew up in, and... and um, but I remember hearing these preachers come in and tell these great stories about how that they were, I mean, they were, they were entrenched in this great wickedness, and then God reached out and just saved them and changed their lives radically. And, and I remember thinking, I, I, I don't have that story. I, I, w- I was pretty young. God saved me from hitting my brother. <laughs> God saved me from... From, you know, um, watching cartoons on Saturday morning when mom and dad were still sleeping and we knew we shouldn't do that. <laughs> this, this was the gravity of my wickedness <laughs> here. And I, and I remember thinking, you, I just don't have the testimony that I need. And I, I look back on that and, I, and I'm saddened by that because I missed the whole point of God's reconciling work. God was saving me not from sins that maybe I had committed. He was saving me from sins that I would commit apart from Him. Now, believe me, I made up for lost time and I've committed a lot of sins (laughs) that God needed to save me from. And He still saved me from that. 
The point that I'm trying to drive home today, we're going to go over and over today, is that you, in Christ, you have been reconciled, and that should produce worship. That should produce complete submission and, and um, giving of yourself to Christ. Our, our, our position of being estranged from God, what we were, our, in, this, in this biography as we're talking about our, our lives, we're looking back on our past. It doesn't matter if you were brought to Christ and understood the gospel and reconciled when you were young or when you were older in life. It doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is you were an enemy of God. And it says that you were doing evil deeds there. This is what we did because our character produces what we do. What our actions show who we are. And so as, as a young boy or as a teenager or as an adult in life, the actions that we produce apart from God is always going to be sin. Now that begs the question. Can unsaved or can the unbelievers, can they do any good thing? Now that could be a tricky question. Can someone without Christ do any good things? Well, initially, the first response is, well, of course they can. You know, when I was in Haiti doing uh, humanitarian work, or when I was in um, uh, Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina, I was amongst thousands of people that they were there to want to help and do good things. And a lot of them didn't know Christ. So could they do good things? Well, on the one level, sure, they can do good things on a human understanding. But when we, let's, let's dial back a little bit and let's look at what the Scriptures have to say. The Scriptures have to say that who we are really taints and, 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 and uh, defines what we do. And so even a good or righteous act, not in the right spirit, in the right way, then becomes an act that God is not pleased with. Remember Isaiah? What Isaiah said, all of your righteousness are as what? Filthy rags, right? We don't need to go into all what that means, but that is a very descriptive term to show that even the righteousness, the things that we hold to as good things, in God's sight, if they're not in his, or for his glory, for his strength, and in his power, they're of, no, they're of no good to him. We also think of Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, when Jesus, he quotes Isaiah 29, verse 13, when he says, these people, they honor me. He was talking about the Pharisees in Matthew 15. He says, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Like I said, this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, which says, and the Lord said, because this people drew near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their heart is far from me, and it says this, and their fear of me, or their worship of me, or their awe of me, is a commandment taught by men. And so what he's saying there is he's saying that why they worship me, why they come to me, is simply because they're following a rule. That's how the NIV translates that, a rule. They're following a rule. And so my point today is that we can do good things. And we can, we can do things that other people will look at and say, that is a great thing. But if it is not for the purpose of bringing glory to God, and if it's not in a spirit or, or, or based upon the fact that we've been reconciled to God, it's of no eternal value. If our actions are not in submission to God and done for His glory, He has no obligation to receive those actions as worship. True, God can and He does use even evil deeds to bring glory to His name. There's no argument there. He does that. But by no means are good works automatically considered righteousness. Our only righteousness is Jesus Christ through his perfect life. 
And the only way that we can be reconciled to God is not based upon anything that you and I do. Because we are people who commit evil deeds. And even the things that are apart from Christ, the things that we try to do that's good, is tainted because of who we are. It's tainted because of our nature. It's tainted because of our sinfulness. And Christ needs to change that. And we need to be reconciled to God. Thereby then he can redeem our works and use it for his glory. So this speaks of our actions, of who we are. And so, let me ask you this. Is this who you are right now? Or is this who you were? That question is a very important question. Is this who you were or is this who you are? For those of you who have been a Christ follower for many years, please do not forget who you were before Christ. And for those of you who, whom God was merciful and granted faith at an earlier age, don't forget what Christ saved you from becoming in a much more full sense. And so as we go along this biographical journey this morning, as, as we look at who you, as, as your life, your spiritual life, we start with who you were and who you are naturally, and that is estranged from God. You were once alienated in hostile minds doing evil deeds. Now that can be very depressing if our biography ended there. There would be no hope there. There would be no, no, uh, no way of, uh, no reason to rejoice, and there would be a lot of despair. But verse 22 says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Can I plead with you? Can I plead with you to never get over the fact that God reconciled you? Can I, can I, can I just ask that if you're, if you're in Christ, if you, if you have a relationship with God, can I, can I please beg of you to not forget the first part of your biography? It's easy for us because we're a new creature. It's easy for us because we're a new creation to forget about some of those things. And we do that, we do that to our shame. God has reconciled us. So point number two, what you are reconciled with God. What we were estranged from God, what we are reconciled to God. This is the people of the, the reconciliation here. He's talking, he's making it very personal. He's making it personal to the Colossians. Now, we understand that when Paul picked up his pen and, and began to write this letter, he was not writing to you and me in specifically in mind. He was not thinking of you. He was not thinking of me. He was thinking of the Colossians. We understand that. But what we also understand is that while it wasn't written to us, it was written for us. And so we can take these same principles and we can apply them to our lives. And we can say, yes, okay, just as Paul said to the Colossians, you he has reconciled, we understand that he can, we can take that emphatic you and that personal you and apply it to our own lives. Uh, go, take your Bibles and just go to Revel, uh, not Re, uh, Romans chapter 5 real quickly here. Romans chapter 5. I just want you to see this text real quickly here. This is this idea of reconciliation here. It's also in 2 Corinthians 5. So those are two texts if you're taking notes you want to write down. Romans 5 and then 2 Corinthians 5. They're very good texts about reconciliation. Verse 6 of Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me just stop there for a minute there. We'll pick it up. Have you ever thought about the fact that every one of your sins that Christ died for, when he died, was they were future sins? He didn't look at any one of your sins and say, yeah, okay, I think I can cover those. And then you sinned again. Every one of our sins was in the future. He knew what we would do. He knew your shortcomings. He knew where you would stumble and fall. And yet, he still died for you. That's awesome. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. While we were enemies, we were reconciled. Did you catch that? Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we shall also rejoice in God through whom our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is the bringing together of two parties who are at odds with each other. You can't be reconciled with someone with whom there's no disagreement. Let's say, for instance, you invite me over to your house. And you're going to have, let's just say, for illustration's sake, you're going to be cooking out on the grill. And for illustration's sake, let's say you're cooking steak. And for illustration's sake, medium. Um, with just a little bit of salt and some butter on top. This illustration is very vivid, okay? So, so, so you, you, you invite me over to your house, and you have a friend there with you whom I've never met. And so we're standing around the grill, as all guys do, looking at the grill while one guy is doing the work, and then we walk in and say, we did it. And so, <laughs> so we're standing around the grill, and so your new friend, your friend whom I've never met, he and I, we're talking, and we're catching, you know, we're, we're fine. Oh, we got this in common, that in common. Oh, okay, great. So we go into the house, and we eat, and then we go our separate ways. I go home, I check my Facebook, and I see that you have posted on there, great evening tonight, Jeremy and my friend were reconciled. That doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense because, I mean, I just met him for the first time. There has to be a disagreement. There has to be something that we are arguing about in order for reconciliation to take place. And this is who we were. We were at odds with God. But God has reconciled us. So that illustration of me and the guy, the, of your friend there, that doesn't work because there was no previous relationship. But there is a previ- previous relationship with you and God and the fact that he created you and that you sinned against him. And because of that sin, that violated that relationship and that there needed to be reconciliation there. And this is why Christ came. This is why Christ came is so that you could have, like Romans 5 says in 2 Corinthians 5, they talk about this idea of being reconciled to God. Please don't get over the fact that you can have peace with God. God, in his reconciling work, understand this, he saved you from himself. He saved you from his wrath. A friend of mine, when his daughter was very young, was uh, running around the house, and she was a toddler, and, and uh, he would play this game called Monster, 
where he would get the snarly look on his face and then he would chase her in the house. Maybe you've done this with your kids. And she would run, and then one time he told me he got her trapped into a corner, and he started coming at her with this ugly look. And he said he actually saw a look of terror come across her face. And then for a second he thought, oh, man, I've gone too far. But, but before he could do anything, she was scared and then just ran to him and grabbed his legs. She understood the thing that she needed to be saved from was the only thing that could save her. You know, in Christ, God's wrath, what we just sang about this, and I hope that those aren't just words on the screen. We sing that God's wrath was completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. And so, this idea of this is who we are now, as we're looking at our biography, our spiritual biography, once we were alienated, once we were hostile, we're doing nothing but evil deeds, but now we are reconciled in the body of His flesh, and that's the sphere of it. It tells where this took place, and maybe that was a, a, a part of the Colossian uh, uh, heresy that was going on. Uh, there are some people that believe that, but it doesn't really matter necessarily that what, what he is saying here is he's saying that it was by the death of Christ, by the physical death of Christ and what he did, this brought us uh, the ability to be reconciled to God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this brings us to the presentation. This is the purpose of reconciliation. Why, why, why does this happen? It says, in order to present you holy and blameless. And so as we're looking at the spiritual, uh, the spiritual biography of your life, we see that once when you were born, you were born dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were hostile to God by your actions and by your thoughts. But now, present tense, God, because of Christ, He has made it possible to be reconciled, so that could be where you are at this very moment. But where are you heading? What's the next step in life? The next step in life is that we will be one day presented before God as holy, as blameless, and above reproach before Him. That's an amazing concept. Because I know my own sinfulness. I know the sins that I struggled with this last week. I know the sins that just yesterday I had to bow and ask God to forgive me for. I know with my shortcomings of how I fail my wife and fail my daughter and fail those around me. I know this about me. But yet, because of Christ, He has made it so that I can live a holy life and that I can be blameless before Him and above reproach before Him. This is the next step in my biographical journey. So point number three then, what you will be presented before God. What you will be, what you were, what you are, what you will be. These terms here that we've talked about in verse 22, they hint at a sacrificial system. The lamb was holy in the fact that it was separated. It was separated for the purpose for a holy job. The lamb had to be without fault or with blemish. And this type of lamb would only be acceptable before God or above reproach before him. And so this is something that, 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 that God in his work, he changes us and makes it so that we can actually be people that are pleasing to him. 
And not only will this be in the future, but God has made it so that according to Romans 6, according to Romans 7, according to Romans 8, that this is a change that God is doing in our lives even as we speak. That He is changing us to be more like Christ. We are a new creature according to 2 Corinthians. We are somebody who God has radically changed and that it is our responsibility then to live a holy life. Now, we're still going to struggle with sin. We're still going to have those faults. But here's the good news. The good news is, is that when Christ is changing us and when he has reconciled us to God, even though we're stumbling and we're falling and we're trying to proceed through this life, we see that God only sees Christ's righteousness on us. We see that God has made it so that we can be reconciled to him where he will not hold these sins that you struggled with yesterday or even this afternoon to He will not hold that to your account because of Christ. So this is a great gospel-centered passage here that we need to grab hold to. What you will be, you will be one day presented before God, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Because of Christ, this is how God sees us and how we will be ultimately presented to him. Now Martin Luther, in commenting on this idea, he he gave this illustration, He, he gave the analogy Because we think we are going to be this, but we're not this. How does that work? How does that work that we are holy in God's sight, but yet we know we're not holy? That we're blameless in God's sight, but we know we're not blameless? That we're we're going to be, uh, we will be above reproach before God, but we know we're not that. How does that work? How does it work that we're really reconciled when we know that we are still sinners? How does this all work? And by way of illustration, Luther, he, he likened it to somebody who was sick and who needed medicine. This person was mortally ill. The doctor proclaimed that he had medicine that would cure this man. Now, the instant the medicine was given to this sick person, the doctor declared the person well. He gave him the medicine and he says, he's fine now. Now, was he really fine at that moment? He still had the sickness, but the medicine was going to begin to change him. So at that moment, the patient was still sick, but as soon as the medicine passed his lips and entered his body, the patient began to get well. So, according to Luther, is our reconciliation and justification. As soon as we believe, that very instant we start to get better, the process of becoming pure and holy is underway, and its future completion is certain. That is the hope we have in Christ. And so, this is what we will be. But verse 23 gives us a really interesting perspective of what is next in our biography. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, am a minister... Number four, what you must do. Continue in the faith. Grammarians call this a first-class conditional statement. When you look at that on the surface level, you say, was he saying, was he making this uh, contingent upon a person's ability to continue? A friend of mine who I went to college with, he looks at this text and he would say that our salvation, our justification cannot be certain. That God is willing to justify us but is dependent upon whether or not we continue. I disagree with that interpretation of this. And so does orthodoxy. If indeed he continues in the faith, has the idea of not necessarily just a wonder 
or uh, a possibility, but it actually has more of the idea of certainty. It's, it's almost like Paul was saying, I assume you will do this. It's almost like saying um, to somebody, if, 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 the, um, if the, uh, um, your, your boss or your manager tells you that you're getting a promotion and, um, and that it will take effect next week, and he says, well, you know, if you fill out the paperwork, it will be as good as done. Okay, well, it's certain that it's going to happen. He's not saying, if you will, saying, oh, I wonder if you're going to fill this paperwork out. I wonder if you're really going to do this. No, he's saying that this is the natural, the next step in showing that you are indeed worthy of that promotion. And so the continuing in the faith is the test of the reality of the faith. That's the important point here. Continuing in the faith is the test of the reality of the faith. If you truly have faith in God, you will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That is why John wrote in his epistles, he said that if they departed from us, they were not of us. Because continuing in the faith is the test of reality of faith. Uh, One commentator, he said this. He said, divine preservation always presupposes human perseverance. Perseverance proves faith's genuine character and is therefore indispensable to salvation. To be sure, no one can continue in the faith in his own strength. John 15, 5. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. The enabling grace of God is needed from start to finish. We see that in Philippians chapter 2, and we sang about it in Grace and Measured. This, however, does not cancel human responsibility and activity. Yes, activity, continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. He quotes Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, which tells us we need to strive for holiness. In Hebrews 12, 14, you can write that reference down. So what this text is saying here is it's saying that the only way for us to be reconciled to God is to depend on God and to depend on what His work has done for us. And that if we truly are depending upon that, we are truly reconciled to God, that will produce in us the desire to be stable in our faith and steadfast in our faith and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we've heard. And so my concern, as I've talked to individuals, uh, someone was, we were in a conversation and um, uh, it, was, it was suggested that, that as Christians we focus too much on the sinfulness of man and not on the, 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 the holiness and the, the victory we can have in Christ. And, and I concede that that probably does dominate a lot of my conversation. And, and I think it does need to be more balanced. However, as I talk with people, I realize that most people, including my own soul, does not realize my sinfulness, does not realize where I am. In fact, I think most times we think we're better than what we are. And so as we look at this text here, what we must do is we must continue in the faith, in the strength that God has given. If you truly have been reconciled to God and changed by Him, there will be a result. There will be something that you can see. There will be fruit, if you will, of that. So my question to you is you look at your biography. You saw where you were. You saw what you are in Christ. You saw what's required of you. You're still writing the biography. The final chapter has not been written yet. We don't know when that final chapter will be written, but it's still being written right now. 
What would the title of that chapter be that's being written right now? Would it be continuing in the faith, steadfast, stable, not shifting? Or would that chapter heading be coasting and comfortable? What would the chapter be? Where are you at right now? And for us in this journey that we're on, we need to be, the chapter that should be written about myself and by you, about you is that by God's grace, in humble, humble service to Him, we're continuing in the faith, steadfast, stable, not shifting from the hope. This is our biographical journey. Where are you at? So have I described your biography well? Is this you? Did you have a time where you're an enemy of God and then now you're reconciled? Are you still in that first stage? Are you continuing in the faith? Have you been reconciled to God? Will you be ultimately presented holy, blameless, and above reproach before Him? If this is you, please keep pressing on. But do so with a thankful, worshipful heart. Please tell others of this reconciliation. That's what we read about in 2 Corinthians 5, that we're ministers of this reconciliation. But my friend, if today you are, are not reconciled to God, can I plead with you to be reconciled to God? Any one of us, myself, we, we would love to chat with you more about that. And so today's message, have you been reconciled to God? What chapter are you on in this biographical journey?